49. Listen to me, you islands. Before I was born, the Lord called me. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. He hid me in the, in the shadow of his hand. And now we're looking at Isaiah 50. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Why should we find these servant songs so compelling? I should say there's another one, which is the most famous of all, which says, He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. It's the most famous of all the servant songs. Haven't got that far yet. Why should we find these songs so compelling? Well, first question, because it's in the Bible. And anything in the Bible, by definition, we ought to be interested in. We, uh, all scripture is profitable for training, rebuke, correction, instruction in righteousness. We need the whole of the Bible, so that ought to be enough for us. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we shouldn't be content with just knowing bits of the Bible, our favourite bits. Perhaps we should know all of it. Um, and you might think that's rather a big ask. If, as a start, if you count the number of pages in your Bible, well, you don't have to count them, it's probably got a, a number somewhere, uh, so mine's got 1,139. If you divide that by 365 using a calculator, you'll find it turns out to be about four or five or something like that. Four or five, uh, 365 is the number of days in a year. If, that means if you were to read four or five pages or whatever it is, you would actually read through the Bible in a year. And if you've never done so, uh, that would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? to get to know every part of God's word. But this, these particular things, these servant songs, why should we find them compelling? Well, here's a second reason, because apparently our saviour Jesus Christ found these words to be particularly relevant to him. He took this and modelled himself on it, was instructed by it, he drank it in, and presumably pondered it very deeply. So, for example, when he went to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, 15, it says, what did he do? What did he decide to do? He decided to set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that is exactly what the servant does in verse 7 of our chapter. He set his face like flint, it says. And I think the reason for that similarity in wording is because Jesus read this and said, I will live by this. I will need to set my face. And he set his, his face, as it were, like a flint to go to Jerusalem to die. Here's a third answer. Because the gospel writers believe that these words were about Jesus. So they quote uh, Matthew chapter 12 verse 18 quotes extensively the bit about a bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not snuff out. And he says, when Jesus came, walking in those streets of those cities, talking to those people, dealing gently with all sorts of people, that was to fulfill these servant songs. And in many other places as well, 
And not only was it Jesus and the Gospel writers, but God himself fulfilled these these words in Jesus. It's God who himself quotes the scripture when he says at the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son, or on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God is quoting scripture there. And uh, for example, uh, in, in Matthew's Gospel, where it says they mocked him and spat at him, Well, that wording mirrors exactly what is in this servant song. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. And there's one other reason, which is a little bit more difficult to get our heads round, that the apostles believed that if it was about Jesus, it's also about us, if we belong to Jesus. That's a little bit more difficult to get our heads round, but here's an example. In Isaiah 50, we have this question, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me, who is he who will condemn me? And Paul picks up that rhythm of question and answer in Romans 8, where it says... Uh, The Lord, now I've forgotten it now, we only read it a moment ago, didn't we? The Lord, who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? And he's picking up the same thought which is used of the servant and saying, those words belong to us if we belong to the servant. We can say, Where's my accuser? God justifies me. Who condemns me? And there's a very deep, there's a very profound way in which these scriptures about the servant also belong to the servant's servants, if you see what I mean. We'll think about that in a moment. Uh, Actually, we're going to think about it now, because this morning I thought we need another slide on this, so uh, I popped this in after breakfast this morning. Here's the question that the text has been raising. Is this about one person, or is it about the nation? You will remember in Isaiah 49.3, it says, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will display my splendor. Now, Israel is the name of... Israel is the name of... Jacob. So he was a single person, one person. But Israel is also the name of... The nation. Yeah, the nation. So it's... Is he saying, you are my servant Israel, a single person, or you are my servant Israel, a whole nation, a collection of people? Is it the single or the... Collection. Whoops, click. Single figure or a group. And the text, if we were to read it in more length, which we're not doing this morning, seems to go between these two thoughts. The text seems to have these two ideas. And I'd like to suggest that the way of thinking about that is that the, the, the one person and the nation sort of are all linked together. 
And the New Testament certainly takes this idea up that Christ and his people are somehow inseparable. And you'll notice the, the number of times in the New Testament we're spoken of as being in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In him we have forgiveness of sins. In him, in him. And I think that this thought of the single person and the people that belong to him is bubbling under the surface of these servant songs. There is a mysterious, unequal sharing between the servant and his people. I put the word sharings there. I hated myself for doing so. It's like learnings. Learnings. Learnings are lessons. Um, but anyway, I couldn't think of a better way of putting it. Ways of sharing. The servant shares with his people in various ways. They're not equal ways. And the nearest equivalent that we have in human uh, experience is marriage. Have you noticed the amazing way that as a husband and wife get to know one another, they work as one, they share, but do you notice it's an unequal sharing? Have you noticed this? There are some things that the wife will do, but the husband doesn't do. There's something that the husband does and the wife doesn't do, and they work together in, in sharing things. So, for example, in our house, we don't equally take out the rubbish. I forget to do it, and Maria takes it. It's a... No, the secret's out now. So, in some cases, the servant does what his people cannot do. So the servant restores Israel. We saw that the other day. He's the one who rescues his people. They don't do that for him. They don't share that equally with him. He saves them. But his mission to be a light to the Gentiles becomes their mission. They do share that. Do you remember? You might not remember this, but the Apostle Paul in Acts quotes this. A light to lighten the Gentiles, which is a quote from the servant songs. And this is the servant's task, but he shares that with his people. His mission becomes their mission. And as we can see, the things that he does are a model for what we're to do. We're to imitate him in certain ways. Some ways we can't imitate him, in other ways we can. And his vindication becomes their vindication. We'll see that, I hope, as we go on. Vindication, we'll come back to that word, but he's vindicated. It's there in 50 verse 8. And his vindication becomes their vindication. And then there's another thing, of course, in Isaiah 53. He is punished for their sins. So that's an unequal sharing. They don't, they don't share it 50-50. Their sins are plonked onto him, and he bears the penalty for their sins. And we've got this world of wonderful, unequal, mysterious, profound uh, sharing in union between Christ and his people. So, let's go back on track. What's the context? We did this last week, but just in case uh, you have, uh, would like a reminder, 
geographically, we're in the Middle East, uh, the, temporary, the territory leased to the nation of Israel. Historically, we're about 700 years BC. Before that, we had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there were their names, in case you couldn't remember. Jacob, who was also Israel. And the 12 there being the 12 tribes of Israel, and as they go on through history, one man becomes a nation. And Israel's role is to show God's goodness to the nations, which she fails to do. And her failure is a failure, a particular sort of failure, a particular sort of sin. It's a sin against knowledge. Paul makes quite a bit of that in Romans 9 to 11 later on. Uh, At the time of the writing of Isaiah's prophecy, he's looking forward and can see where this is all heading, the certainty of exile and also the promise of a homecoming. So he's situated where that blue arrow is, that's when he's writing, and he's looking forward in the end to the cross. So let's, uh, that was the context, let's look at the text. Verse 4, beginning of the servant song, number 3. Notice the sovereign Lord is repeated several times. It means Yahweh who is the master. The sovereign Lord, says the servant, has given me an instructed tongue. What it literally says is the tongue of a disciple. To know the word that sustains the weary. So he says, this is, uh, no, let me read the rest of it. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like a disciple. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. It's an interesting and rather beautiful thing, I think, for the servant to be saying. He's saying, who is, who is he? What is this being described? Is the servant as a disciple? The servant as a disciple, the servant as a learner, What position am I in, says the servant? Well, I'm in this position of being given the ability to speak, and I speak as a disciple. I speak as someone who has listened and learned. And I've listened and learned so much, so well, that I, in turn, can speak a word to sustain the weary. That's quite a lot of learning, isn't it? If you think what words are most, uh, what should I say, most, not demanding, but require the most to say, well, instruction is not that difficult, and exhortation is not that difficult, but to be able to get inside somebody's heart and mind who is weary and to be able to say something that will give hope and perk them up, that really does show a huge degree of understanding. And the servant says, the sovereign Lord has given me the tongue of a disciple to know the word that sustains the weary. And there's the weary. You'll find the weary in, uh, I think it's Isaiah 55, isn't it? There, the... um, Even the young men shall grow weary 
But those who trust in the Lord shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not faint. They shall run and not be weary. And there's the weary person. And in the context, probably what they're doing is trying to get home. They're, they're, they're on their way home and the sun's beating down on them. And it might be hot and a long journey. And they're weary. And the servant knows exactly what to say to sustain the weary. Uh, So you have the word that the servant listens to from the Lord and then the word that the servant can give to the weary. And we notice that he says, notice the character of this listening, the Lord wakes me up every morning and every morning I listen to him. That's a, I think that's a wonderful description of discipleship, isn't it? Every day I listen to, I learn, I orientate my day, I refresh my thinking um, from the word of the Sovereign Lord. And it also tells us that because the servant did this repetitively, repeatedly, presumably he didn't learn everything all at once. Presumably, there was a process of learning he had to go through. Um, And this is certainly true of Jesus, isn't it? He grew in wisdom and stature. Perhaps we could imagine the Lord Jesus as a little child being taught. Well, he wouldn't have been taught the catechism, because that catechism hadn't been invented. But being taught the scriptures, being taught how to pray. And then as he gets older, he learns more. And he begins to see things more. He begins to learn things more. He learns things about himself, about how to live, about life, about the neighbours across the street and why they argue and, and, how, and all these sorts of things. He learns and learns. Uh, he learns remarkably, doesn't he? When he was a, um, a young boy, he's there in the temple courts, you remember, discussing with the professors of theology and they're very impressed with the the profundity of his understanding, but he he learned, he grew. And I suppose this says that if we're to be disciples, um, well, we go through a process too. We start off as little babies in understanding and we grow and we grow if, of course, we go through this process of listening. A beautiful picture of Jesus and one in which we are to take him as our model. If he learned and grew this way, then it's a good model for us to follow and a good model for us to pass on to baby Christians and indeed, uh, in a sense, our children. Let's see what happens next. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. Just stop on that word, rebellious. I, said the servant, have not been rebellious. That's not such a common thing for people to say. If you look in the Bible, uh, look for a list of all the people who could honestly say, I've not been rebellious who could honestly say that, I think you come to a list of one. Because Adam was rebellious, wasn't he? 
our first father, Adam. He was told what to do and what not to do by God. You've got enormous freedom, just one thing you don't do, and Adam rebelled. And Israel was rebellious. And God pleads with Israel, a very famous plea from the Lord to Israel, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be white and as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. If you turn in rebellion, saying to God, I'm not going to do that, then you'll be devoured by the sword. Israel was rebellious. But the servant says, I'm not rebellious. Of course, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's our problem as human beings, that we're rebellious. That's what sin is. It's a form of rebellion. I wouldn't like you to think that Christianity says we're victims. Something happens to us and we're so sad and broken and God just sort of uh, does medical work on us and, and heals us. It's not, I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the, the depth of it. We're rebels. We've spat at God. We've shaken our fists at God. We've, uh, we've insulted God. We're rebels. We need to repent we need to ask for forgiveness for our obnoxious behaviour. But the servant says, I am not rebellious. And if you were to look into the Gospels, particularly John's Gospel, it keeps on saying that this is exactly the way the servant lives and uh, conducts himself and thinks about himself and thinks about life and thinks about his relationship with God, total submission of the Son to the Father was Jesus' way of life. Whatever the Father says, I will do. And the Son delights to do the Father's will. I, says the servant, have not been rebellious. Unless we should think that that's a fairly easy thing, just look at what it led him into. And in a sense, the, 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 the text here doesn't explain why, this, why it should lead him this way, but this is where it does lead him. I have not been rebellious, verse 5. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to the, uh, those who beat me, to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I don't know, guys, who have got beards just looking round. Landlord of the Joker has got one of these massive beards like this. Would you fancy having your beard plucked out? I would imagine that's an extremely painful, unpleasant thing. I offered my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. 
It's a very costly path because the Sovereign Lord says, that's the way for you. Those people want to whip you on the back. Those people want to spit in your face. Those people want to pluck out your beard. That's the way to go. And the servant says, as you know, in Gethsemane, he says, oh, are we quite sure? Is this, have I got to do this? I don't really like the idea of this. And the father says, it is my will for you to do that. And the, the son says, yes, I will. It's costly obedience, a costly path to follow. Jesus says that we should follow him in this. We might pause to ask, what made him do it? Why did he offer his back to those who beat him? Why uh, did he offer his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard? And one, the, the answer in this text is because it was, it was a matter of obedience and respect to his father. The sovereign Lord says, this is the way you are to go. And rather than the servant saying, well, I don't know why, I don't, I don't see why I should, this, this doesn't make any sense to me. He just does it. I don't know whether sometimes in our lives the path is there and we say, I don't know, I, you know this makes no sense to me, what am I going to get out of this? How, how, does this, how does this help me? And the father says, no, that's what I want you to do. And we, we might rebel at that point. But the servant does, obeys out of respect for his father. We know there's another motive. Because he loved us. I don't know a huge number of people who would go through this for me. I mean, for a good man, someone might dare to die, yes. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ did all this for us. Let's go on in the text. So he's, the, the, the servant is facing, for some reason, which is not clear in this text, but is clear elsewhere, uh, this adverse uh, uh, opposition. And now he says, in verse 7, but I know how this will turn out. He says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. I know I will not be put to shame. So you've got those two words there of shame and disgrace. Uh, Alec Matir in his commentary had a wonderful description of these which I entirely failed to remember or write down. But it was something like this. When you look forward to something and you, uh, you're in the position where that is denied you, where you're trusting in something and uh, it, it ends up that you were mistaken in your trust and you end up being disappointed... Uh, or you're confident about something and it ends up that this is, was a, you were completely, your confidence was completely misplaced and you look like an idiot. Shame, what was my other word? Uh, being confounded, being disgraced, looking like a complete idiot. 
And in a way, the, the, the servant is treated as if he was a shameful object. But he says, I know I will not be put to shame. I know in the end I will not be left in disgrace. Yeah, there were two words in the text, disgraced, put to shame. And therefore, he says, I don't waver, even though it feels, I presume I'm putting words into his mouth here, but the feeling of this is that it's awful, a miscarriage of justice. Why should I put up with this? But he says, I set my face like a flint. I'm going to do this. It's an interesting insight into the psychology of the servant, isn't it? Because he's steadfastly pressing on with a very unpleasant path. I think modern-day Christianity tends to find that a bit difficult because we put so much emphasis on feeling good about things and delighting in things. I think we'll probably overuse that well. We might be tempted to overuse that, that handle on the Christian life. But here is the servant who's going through something extremely unpleasant. And he says what he has to hold him up in this is that he sets his face like a flint. I will do this, even if it kills me. And I think the words for that would be determination and courage. Probably time we put those words back into the vocabulary of the Christian life. To do things out of determination and courage. Courage is a Christian virtue. Anyway. I will not be disgraced. I will not be put to shame. Why so? Uh, please notice the word help, verse 7. The sovereign Lord helps me. Now, what is the word help meaning? It's there in verse 9 as well. Uh, so help might mean help you with carrying your shopping. Help might mean opening a door for you if you're carrying a heavy load. Uh, help, oh, I don't know what help might mean. It might mean unloading the dishwasher. Very helpful. Not knocking any of those things. But the word help here has a far stronger idea behind it. Uh, this is not just helping the servant carrying the shopping in. This is a robust, powerful intervention by the Lord on behalf of the servant. Look what it says. He who vindicates me is near. So let's look at that word vindicate. Anybody got a different translation for vindicate? Okay. Um, anybody got an authorised version? Uh, a, Ger a Swiss German version does not count for the purposes of this exercise. Well, the word, let me explain this word to you. It's a word to do with being righteous. And English struggles to, to find one word to pin on this idea. If you were to turn, please, to Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, you'll find this word and its opposite. And it is in the context of legal uh, legal proceedings 
So I can reminisce that uh, um, a driver bumped into Maria. He, the driver did bump into Maria and claimed that she had bumped into him and took it to court. It wasn't a big court, but it was a, a, an official court hearing, and we waited for months on tenterhooks for this. And, uh, and all the evidence was gone through until at the end, the, he wasn't actually a judge, but he was something or other. He said, well, uh, here is my verdict. It was not Mrs. Wells who bumped into you, but you who bumped into Mrs. Wells. Here's the reason for it. And uh, Mrs. Wells leaves this court without a stain on her name, and particularly on her driving license, and etc. So they came to a, a conclusion like that. I have to say it was such a relief. We thought, money's no object. We'll go and buy a cup of coffee. And that's what we did. <laughs> Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. When men have a dispute, they take it to the court, and the judge will decide the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Acquitting the innocent. So the innocent person is acquitted. So that's the word in English there. Uh, justify would be another English word that some of the Bible use. If you wanted to make up a word, you could say righteousnessify, meaning to declare righteous. And the opposite is to condemn, to declare guilty. And that's the function of a court. It takes the evidence and the people and comes up saying, you are acquitted, you are justified, you are righteous, and you, on the other hand, are condemned, and from that, your treatment will be according to that. So you are justified, righteous, acquitted, and will be treated as such. You'll leave the court without a stain on your name, and you are condemned, and you have to pay costs, and if you don't do it, you'll go to prison, and you'll be treated as guilty. So that's justification and condemnation. And the servant says, verse 8, the one who justifies me is near. In other words, the judge who at some point will say, servant, you are condemned, you ought to be treated as condemned, or who will say, servant, you are justified and ought to be treated as justified. Now you see, what happened is, that so far the servant has been treated as a condemned person, hasn't he? The servant has been hit, spat at, mocked, as if he were a condemned criminal. Disgraced, shameful. And the servant says, but the one who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he who will condemn me? Do you get the force of that? He's saying the Lord God, the great judge, is on my side. He doesn't find me guilty. He finds me innocent. He says... No stain on your name. Treated as there's no stain on your name. Honoured. He who vindicates me is near. Who's going to disagree with the Lord on this? So I have my accusers. 
my troublers, the one who, um, the accuser, very funny word for that, uh, uh, and I didn't quite understand the translation of it, it seems to be somebody who, who tries to make law condemn me, accuser, and the servant says, nobody's going to get away with that because I haven't done anything wrong. The Lord will vindicate me to declare innocent and treat me as such. I put a reference to Isaiah 43, 26. I can't remember why. Let's look and see if I can find out. Um, yeah, this is uh, to do with Israel. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. State the case of your, for you to be justified. And of course, Israel would have a very weak case because they had rebelled. But the servant has got a very strong case and he's justified. And the Lord helps him in this specific way. Who will condemn? Now, you... You get that, do you not, about the servant? You think, yes, absolutely, I can see that point. But here's the amazing thing, that the Apostle Paul says, well, if you belong to the servant, then when he was vindicated, you're so much tied to him that you're vindicated too. We so much belong to the servant that when Christ died on the cross and the Father vindicated him and raised him from the dead and said, you don't deserve to be condemned like a criminal. You deserve to be vindicated, to be justified, to be lifted high, to be honoured. That Jesus Christ had sort of reached out his hand and grabbed hold of us too. And when he was lifted and vindicated, he brought us along with him. We didn't deserve it, but he brought us along with him. And so the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, and when Christians are accused, God justifies. Who is it that condemns? Where's the accuser? Let us face one another. The Sovereign Lord helps us. Who will condemn? And that's just an, an amazing thing for a Christian, isn't it? To be able to say, in the courtroom of God... The accuser's claim is swept away by the brilliance, the obedience of the servant. And when we go to court, as it were, the servant stands up there for us and says, when the finger's pointed at us, the servant says, hold on, I died for these people. They're my people. When I was vindicated, they were vindicated too. And we might say, Hallelujah, what a saviour. Let's go now to the fate of his accusers. Who will condemn me? Verse 9. What will happen to these people? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. What happens to the accusers? They will all fail like a garment. I suspect we probably don't understand this text because when we have finished with a garment, 
we probably take it to the charity shop because it's, or take it back to the charity shop because it was, it's perfectly, still perfectly wearable. The idea of, of clothes becoming unwearable is a little, is something that we're not terribly familiar with, but it, it, could you imagine something that has become so awful that it's unwearable? Think of a floor cloth and think of how, how worn out it gets and how horrible it gets. And if clothes got like that, what will happen to the accusers? They will all fail like a garment, it says. Moths will eat them up. And again, we think moths. They're such lovely creatures, full of... Well, they're not particularly colourful, but... And I don't particularly, to be honest, have a soft spot for moths. But my, my colleague, uh, at, at, when I used to teach, she really loved moths. She was really a, 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 an expert on moths. So we think this is a rather benign little text here. Um, they, they will wear out like a garment. Well, they go to the charity shop, be used again. Eaten up by moths. Well, moths aren't a big problem. I think it's actually a rather frightening text. There's a moth. Um, let's imagine a clothing that, re you know, let's, let's dig it, put it in the ground and let it rot or something like that. So that it becomes just what it used to be, but corrupted with holes in it, all eaten away. But it's still there. And I think it's a rather frightening text. The accusers become like a shredded old garment with holes in it, eaten by moths. And if, if you're still not convinced that that's a, a frightening text, think of worms. Worms are benign creatures, aren't they? When, you, when you're at primary school, or if you're a primary school teacher, do you not give lessons about worms? Did you make a wormery? No. I'm sure we did. did you? Nobody ever done that? Yes, worms and that. Thank you. Thank you. No. Education sadly lacking here. Um, but we used to do, do stuff. I mean, worms. Oh, they're lovely little. No? Okay. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to go with you now and say. Actually, there, the, Isaiah uses the idea of the worm as being the creature that devours dead bodies and says that the worm does not die. There's a worm. And I think this is, this is equally as dark a picture. What happens to the accuser? They're like, they get eaten up like a very, very old garment. Moths eat them like the worm that does not die. I think it's a horrible, uh, a horrible end. And it's one of these things in the Bible that in a sense hardly bears thinking about. That the, the servant is so crucial in the plan of God for the human race that to follow him is life and to reject him is to embrace the most complete and awful and comprehensive destruction. I think it's a frightening description. Um, and the servant is, is saying, you know, it doesn't happen straight away, but that's where it's headed. Yeah, it's a very sober thought. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? So this is a question, who? There's actually been several questions. Who? Who will bring charges? Who is my accuser? Who will condemn me? Here's another question. Who 
fears the Lord? So I'm going to finish with this question and ask you this question. Who fears the Lord? Who here fears the Lord? Who fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? It's interesting that, isn't it? Because the servant made it his habit to sit and listen day by day to the sovereign Lord. And now in his turn, the servant offers his instruction. And the question is, who listens to the word of the servant? Who listens to the word of the servant? Who hears the word of the servant? And to fear the Lord and to listen to the voice of the servant are put in partnership. You say, well, I fear the Lord. I'm not a Christian, though. Well, hold on. How can you fear the Lord if you don't listen to the word of the servant? He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, what should they do? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So we've got the word trust, which we understand. Actually, Isaiah has quite a lot about trusting. We sort of think that faith is a New Testament thing, but it's there in Isaiah the essence of the, the spiritual life, to trust the name of the Lord and rely on his God. The reliance word is like uh, what you do when you have a walking stick and you lean on it to support you. Uh, you it's a, a trust, but it's also a leaning. And you can lean on all sorts of things, metaphorically. Uh, Isaiah 31 has a rather fascinating text woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses who trust in the multitude of their chariots so there's an example of trusting and leaning so leaning leaning on horses if you think leaning on horses I think that's a very odd idea leaning on a horse but you see what he means lean trusting in in the power that that technology could give if that's where your life is based you're not leaning on the Lord, but you should do. And here's the opposite. And this is rather frightening too. Verse 11, But now all you who light fires and provide yourself with flaming torches... You see, he, there was darkness and no light, and the light was to trust in the Lord. And here... People are saying there's no light. We'll make our own light. We'll kindle our own fire. We'll make our own torches or firelights or whatever. He says, okay, you go and do that. Go and walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. And where does that get you? It's a really uh, abrupt change of mood here, isn't it? This is what you'll have from my hand. There you are, lighting your own torches, finding your own way through life, saying this is what I feel is, is true and right and good, not interested in God telling me that. I'm lighting my own torch on this. He says, you will lie down in torment. The word torment is, I think this is the one and only use of it in the Old Testament, 
it's linked with, with grievous pain. I think it's used of, uh, in, in a, a sort of connection with childbirth, the pains of childbirth. But he says, this is what you will have to lie down in torment. I'm taken by surprise by the severity of these texts at the end because most of the things about the servant are so gentle and encouraging and inviting but this is the opposite if you won't have the gently flowing waters as it were then this is what you get this is what you've chosen this is what you've chosen is for yourself to lie down in grievous pain so on that note I finish and the question was who so of us here who who fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Who trusts in God and relies on him? And the people who don't, who light their own fires, you can read what the Bible says. Let's close with a song about trusting. 769.